Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 417, Laugh, Cry, or Scream. What is a persecution complex, and why is it that wherever the church is most committed to living the Jesus way, they are experiencing the most persecution? Let's study together the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I had one uh, question came up from last week's teaching where we did part two on uh, blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, I was talking about the Good Samaritan. And I said that uh, the Samaritan was the one who stopped for the one on the side of the road. And someone thought that I was saying that um, he left Samaria to go and help that uh, person. And that's, that's not, of course, what happened at all. But what I was saying that it was because he left his familiar locale, that it was as he was traveling in unfamiliar places that he encountered the man on the side of the road. And so I encouraged us last week, uh, part of being neighbors is to step outside of our, our socioeconomic, uh, perhaps racial um, boundaries, neighborhoods, and, and go in to other places. Okay, tonight, blessed are those who are persecuted for justice' sake or righteousness' sake, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, As I said last week, we did part two on Blessed are the Peacemakers. And last week I taught largely in the context of the Black Lives Matter marches. Really now has become a global movement. I'm told it's now in more than, there's marches going on in more than 400 cities uh, all over the globe. I know there was 20,000. Some of you are from Australia right now. You had 20,000 on Sunday in Sydney. Um, and so that was the context. And, and, and I'm very encouraged. You know, this series started just before we became aware of how serious COVID was and before the lockdown that we're still in the middle of in, in my part of the world. It started just before that. We've had all of this uh, with George Floyd. And it's almost as if we planned to teach uh, on the Beatitudes right now. And of course, that wasn't the case, but the Lord knew knew what was coming. I'm really pleased, as I'm sure you all are, to see that the uh, demonstrations, though they're increasing every day, um, they have been, they've become very calm, very peaceful, and, um, and yet very effective because they are leading to, to fundamental questions um, and discussion about racial injustice. However, having said that, I've decided this week I'm not really going to teach this final beatitude in the context of what is happening around the world. There's obviously going to be application, but um, I I want to go at it in a different way. You know, it's interesting because, (coughs) excuse me, even... uh, Going back to the earliest church fathers, going to any commentaries now, um, this eighth beatitude has either been just presented as verse 10, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for justice's sake, there's the kingdom of heaven, or the beatitude is expressed uh, in 10, 11, 12. And we're going to get into that a little later, but I, I found it very interesting to, to as I kind of delved into this, to see that from 1,700 plus years, uh, there's been two different perspectives, the the more narrow and the broader perspective on on this. I have found this um, challenging. I tend to say that to you every week. But tonight I'm talking to you about uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for justice's sake. And... um, and I, frankly, I know very little 
about being truly persecuted for justice sake. You know, we all see posts in social media um, written uh, by Western Christians complaining about being persecuted. And uh, since I spend so much time when we don't have a COVID-19 pandemic, I spend so much time in the developing world where there is real persecution leading to imprisonment, harassment, even death. Um, Honestly, it's hard for me to evaluate these Western Christian complaints. So tonight, I am drawing largely from those who know more about this than I do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ultimately was executed uh, for his faith, the early church fathers, uh, and, and drawing from the example of my friends overseas who truly know what persecution is. So as we look at this final beatitude, I want to remind us about the context, about the setting. Jesus goes up to the mountain, it was really probably what we would call a sizable hill, and he sits down and the disciples sit down around him, immediately around him, but he invites the crowds to come. Uh, there was nothing distancing about Christ. Uh, he invited everyone always. But what I was thinking about is that dis- Jesus is, is addressing these disciples uh, at the beginning of his ministry. They're, they've got a million questions. It's exciting. They're unsure what's, what's going to happen. And they, at this point, have no idea the price that they're going to pay for following Jesus. Um, they're going to increasingly experience persecution. Uh, tradition tells us that all but the Apostle John died um, as martyrs. As, as the world and the, the principalities and powers, the, the dark powers that are behind the, the world systems, as the world realized the extent the radical extent of Jesus' gospel, uh, they became more and more threatened. And uh, increasingly, we watch as they strike back, um, verbally, by trying to get the people against him, uh, and then very physically. So let's go right into this beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, It's interesting because he starts, like all the other Beatitudes, in the third person. Blessed are those. And then he moves to the much more direct and intense second person. Because as he goes on in this Beatitude, he says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. Notice Jesus did not say, blessed are you if you are persecuted. He said, when you are persecuted. Probably more than any other two Beatitudes, uh, this one is directly linked to blessed are the peacemakers. He's saying, the disciples should expect to be persecuted. At that point, I wonder what they were even thinking about persecution. And they'll be reviled, which really means to be unpopular, to have bad things thought and said about them. And it's because he's called them to be peacemakers, peacemakers who, as we looked last week, stand up and say no to injustice. There's nothing passive about peacemaking. Just as every disciple is to be a peacemaker, every disciple should expect persecution. Um, Remember I told you last week that peacemaking is in and of itself an assault uh, upon the powers that be. And so, of course, those powers are going to direct structures and individuals into persecuting and reviling disciples. Uh, 
We, uh, we learned a few weeks ago that the word for righteousness and justice is exactly the same word. They're not just synonyms, it's the same word, both in Hebrew and Greek. And it's up to the translators uh, as to which word they will use. And, and some translators say justice, but, but uh, most of them uh, say righteousness, for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I think that righteousness... When they use that word, it, it personalizes the, uh, the original word. Righteousness gets back to my personal righteousness, what's going on with me. Um, and um, by doing this in the translation, I think they're missing what many of the church fathers recognized as an extremely social beatitude. In fact, uh, many of the church fathers translated this as justice, blessed are those who uh, are persecuted for justice' sake. Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out that in the original Greek, this phrase refers specifically to suffering for a just cause. Uh, I really want to emphasize that, a just cause. In a world that is filled with systemic injustice, even hatred, disciples are those who will... Uh, stand up knowing that they're going to be hated for it, that they're going to be pressed against. Let me give you a, a quote from Bonhoeffer. I found him very helpful this week. And you know that Bonhoeffer himself was martyred. Um, he was executed by the Nazis, in fact, just days before the concentration camp where he was being held um, uh, he was uh, specifically, they specifically instructed the guards to execute him just before the liberation. Bonhoeffer so therefore knows something about being persecuted. He said this, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Suffering means allegiance to the suffering Christ and is therefore not at all surprising, it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Those are pretty radical words from a very radical man who has continued to influence the church greatly. Uh, now these 60 years, uh, 70 years past his death. Because following Jesus is so antithetical to the direction and the values and the goals of the world. Um, and I've told you repeatedly through this series that, that the, the true community of Jesus was always countercultural. But because they moved so antithetically, then of course, and, and, uh, and still should today, I might add, the world, of course, will be offended. Um, offense always leads to some sort of persecution, even as seemingly benign as being rejected or uh, somehow being snubbed. In fact, Jesus is warning the disciples that their reward will not be recognition, but rejection. Now, don't we all crave for recognition, and he's saying that you're not going to get it. Instead, you're going to get rejection for your actions and for your message. If, if we're following Jesus, I promise you, if you're following Jesus, sooner or later, he will take you outside the walls of the community. You will experience that, perhaps from the church, perhaps from your place of employment, perhaps from your social circle, but following Jesus will take you outside the walls. Because if we take up our cross and follow him, we know where he went and where he always goes. Now, it's interesting. I just want to make this small point, but Jesus said, uh, blessed are you, who are persecuted on my account. He's not saying, blessed are you who are persecuted because you're cantankerous or you're expecting a fight from the world 
or your idiosyncrasies or, or your foolishness. He's not saying any of that. In fact, we're to be wise, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. So that leads me into something I want to talk about a little bit, which is the difference between what I believe is the persecution of walking the Jesus way versus almost a collective persecution complex. I said at the beginning tonight that in, in one sense I come like Paul, I come in, in, in fear and much trembling because I know so little personally about real persecution. So I don't know what I can legitimately say about this beatitude. I've known some rejection and some isolation uh, for my efforts to challenge the status quo. Probably some of you have too. I, I've been isolated uh, in denominations. I've been isolated from circles of people. Um, but but to be to be isolated or rejected like that, this is not persecution, folks. This is not persecution. What Jesus said to his disciples, that you will be reviled and you will be persecuted, and he was really telling them you're going to die, this applies right now directly all over the world. You know, um, there are so many different statistical grids, but, but one pretty common grid says that we're in a time right now where approximately 90,000 disciples of Christ die each year for their faith. And some of you, that's no surprise, and some of you, that would just be a shock. Numerically, there's no comparison between the 20th and 21st century and the, and the first two centuries. So this issue of, of real persecution versus a persecution complex I think we have to I think we have to face it head on as disciples of Jesus. About 6 years ago my wife and I went visiting a church and um the pastor <coughs> was talking about persecuted Christians. And I was ready for a talk about missions or something overseas, but I was wrong. Because what he said was to the congregation, you and I are persecuted for our faith all the time. And then he gave uh, several examples, uh, kind of anecdotal examples. He says, um, he says that you're, sometimes people say unkind things to you because you're a Christian. Uh, sometimes you're passed over um, for a promotion. Sometimes they say mean things about you behind your back at work. By the way, he was speaking in the most churched city in all of Canada. Um, and when I heard it, again, given what I do, I, I could hardly sit still. I did sit still. I think my wife, Christina, probably had her hand on my knee, down boy. But I didn't know whether to laugh or whether to cry, or whether to scream. I work, as I've said, very closely with the church around the developing world. Uh, my spiritual son, who I can't name here, some of you know who it is, but um, he's been stabbed multiple times, he's been shot, he's been dropped headfirst from a very high bridge. It was only a miracle that he came to some hours later. His pastors have been beaten. I know a pastor who they held him down and drove back and forth over his legs with an SUV. Some of his pastors have been jailed um, just before I visited there two years ago, one had been uh, killed, shot in front of his church. I have a friend 
from a country in East Africa. Don't think I should even say which one. And besides being threatened and chased for years and years and years, having to travel with disguise and hidden identity, besides that, his mother was martyred right in front of him. His wife was martyred right in front of him. My good friend and our partner, Mike Brown, I thought of him, I remember thinking immediately of Mike when I heard that Canadian pastor, because Mike has had so much persecution and they don't stop. None of these men stop or the women. They keep going. He had a bomb thrown into his church Sunday school bus and eight kids killed. He's had a bomb thrown into his church. He had 14 street kids he raised from being just little and getting them through a primary school and elementary school and secondary school and getting them to university where they were gunned down, 14 of them in a cafeteria. I don't know anything about persecution. I, um, I told you last week that when I marched with Black Lives Matter, there was a moment for me when I, when I put my hands up as the crowd shouted, hands up, don't shoot. And I told you that that was almost a, a visceral moment. Uh, not overwhelmingly so, but I felt something. I felt how vulnerable. But I can't know. One of my dear friends is an African-American pastor. And, and he and I talked. I can't know what that's like. All I can do is walk with them. I can't know what it's like for my friends who are pastoring and watching people in their flocks killed. This is the kind of persecution that the church faced for 300 years, the first 300 years. And it still goes on, and it still goes on, and it still goes on. And we deal with our partnership where they're persecuted, where they're interrogated, where they're incredibly harassed, where they're punched. Now, not a long time ago. You see, the church was persecuted, the early church, because it refused to follow along. They insisted on following the Jesus way, and this inevitably pushed them going against the tide the tide of both popular opinion and the power and might of the state. And nothing's changed in parts of the world. By the way, where the church is growing, the places I just described to you, they're seeing incredible, incredible growth. Three different nations that I just described. Let me read you a quote from one of the church fathers. St. Justin said this, We who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness, have each of us uh, in all the world changed our weapons of war, swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks. We who formerly murdered one another, by the way, when he wrote that, he was referring to uh, before they, they fought in the state's wars. But now, not only do not make war upon our enemies, but that we may not lie or deceive our judges, we gladly confess Christ. <coughs> it is easy to imagine that a community that lived by those kind of values, that would not support Rome, that would not go to war, that when, when soldiers came to Christ, they knew it meant leaving the army. It's easy to imagine that that kind of a community that lived by such values was regarded as a threat by the Roman Empire. Many of you know that after the what's called the Edict of Milan, A.D. 313, uh, Constantine 
made what was uh, <laughs> a persecuted religion, the early church, he made it acceptable. He, in fact, it became quickly the official religion of Rome. Just <clears throat> about 70 years later, another church father, St. Jerome, said this, when the church came to the princes of the world, she grew in power and wealth, but diminished in virtue. I leave an open-ended question on this. Why is it that where the church is most radically committed to the Jesus way, that is where it is the most persecuted? And you can take that to the bank. You can, you can, you can say that in almost any country that you can think of. Let me ask the question one more time. Why is it that where the church is most radically committed to the Jesus way, it is the most persecuted. Jim Forrest, who I like very much, said this, Christianity tends to be tolerated to the extent that it uh, acclimates itself to the society in which it finds itself. Christianity tends to be tolerated to the extent that it acclimates itself to the society in which it finds itself. So I I just wanted to point out the difference between what's almost a persecution complex and real persecution. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, in verse 11 and 12, Jesus said, Therefore rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For in the same way. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the final beatitude, Jesus points out uh, the, the prophets as models. He says, look at the prophets. They're the models. Um, in fact, later in Matthew's gospel, we see him confronting the religious people on how they treated the prophets in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were called watchmen. They were called messengers. They were called the very servants of God. He says, just as the prophets were persecuted, so will you be. You know, there was a universal popularity to the prophets who reinforced what the people and the leaders wanted to hear. I, uh, I was reading Jeremiah, I think last week or the week before, and a couple of times it comes up where he says the prophets call out, peace, peace, where there's no peace. And the powers that be are delighted to hear it. I was reading two days ago, Micaiah, uh, a prophet during the time of uh, Ahab, King Ahab. And all the other prophets are saying exactly what the state wants to hear. And they're being praised and rewarded. And Micaiah says, no, that's not true. This is the truth. And he, and he prophesies the, the destruction of Ahab and the army. In the Old Testament, they, they loved, <laughs> I would say, the false prophets who reinforced what the people and the leaders wanted to hear. I would, I'm going to go out on a limb here. But I think we need to be very careful because I think the, the same thing is completely possible and in fact I think happens again in our day. That the, the prophecies of prosperity, of how many prophecies were there? 2020, God's going to give you great vision. This is going to be the year that we break through. But the true prophets, the true prophets were persecuted because their words cut against the very movement and the advantage of, of their society. They challenged the powers that be because they cut against what the people wanted to hear. They cut against the way society was, was exalting itself. We're making great progress. A few years ago, I posted an article by Father John Deere, who actually is here in New Mexico, on the marks of a, of a true prophet. I've read a number of his things. 
You might be surprised to know that we have someone in Santa Fe who's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, I'm going to take a few minutes and, and give you some, not all, but some of his marks of a true prophet. A prophet is someone who listens attentively to the word of God. He's a contemplative, a mystic who hears God and takes God at God's word and then goes into the world to tell the world God's message. So a prophet speaks God's message fearlessly, publicly, without compromise, despite the times, whether they be fair or foul. Secondly, a prophet interprets the signs of the times. The prophet is concerned with the world here and now, in the daily events of the whole human race, not just our little backyard. The prophet sees the big picture, war, starvation, poverty, corporate greed, nationalism, systemic violence, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction. The prophet interprets these current realities through God's eyes. Thirdly, a prophet takes sides, and, and the bias is toward the, the bottom or the, the preferential option for the poor. And I've told you all, all along, Jesus is always on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And this prophet stands in solidarity with the poor, the powerless, and the marginalized. A prophet becomes a voice for the voiceless. Indeed, a prophet is the voice of God to a voiceless people. Next, all the prophets of the Hebrew Bible are concerned with one main question, justice and peace. They call people to act justly and create a new world of social and economic justice, which will be the basis for a new world of peace. And the prophet will not shy away from telling us that if we want a spiritual life, we must work for justice and peace. Please hear that. Next, a prophet confronts the status quo. With the prophet, there is no sitting back. The powerful are challenged. Empires are resisted. Systemic injustice is exposed. Prophets vigorously rock the leaky ship of the state and shake our somnolent complicity. Ooh, that's a good word. Next, for the prophet, the secure life is usually denied. Isn't that what Jesus just said? More often than not, the prophet is in trouble. Prophets call for love of our nation's enemies. They topple the nation's idols. They upset the rich and the powerful. Next, true prophets take no delight in calling down heavenly bolts. Rather, they bear an aura of compassion and gentleness. Blessed are the meek. They are good and decent, kind and generous. They've learned to cultivate joy and now exude joy. Next, prophets are visionaries. In a culture of blindness, they offer insight. In a time of darkness, they light our path. When no one else can see, the prophet can. And what they see is a world imbued with God's purposes, a world of justice and peace and security for all, a world where all of creation is safe and at rest. That's why I insist the, the whole movement of Christ is rescue, reconciliation, and restoration. Finally, the prophet offers hope. Now and then they might sound despairing, but only because they have a heightened awareness of the world's darkest realities. These things overwhelm us. We would rather not hear about them, but hearing is our only hope. For behind the prophet's unvarnished vision lies a hope we seldom understand the knowledge that God is with us, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I would add that the true prophet has followed the way of Jesus along the road of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes give us a grid, as Brad reminded us several weeks ago, for discerning prophecy. When you get a prophetic word, take it through the grid of blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. So that's that's the first half of the Beatitude. Now, rather briefly, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Note that this last Beatitude, just like the first one, gives a promise in the present tense. The other ones are future tense. This one is the present tense. Jesus is declaring that the reality of the kingdom of the heavens is breaking in. The disciples would witness and experience the increase of the kingdom. They would see the increase of the already and the not yet. And I do not think it's far off and far off. I don't, I don't mean chronologically. I don't know. Nobody knows when Christ comes again. But in terms of the far off of the blessing, of the reality, I'm watching the kingdom of God come and change communities. I'm watching the kingdom of God come and, and heal little deaf kids and blind kids and, and lame people get up and walk. I'm watching the kingdom of God come as good news to the poor. It's not far off. It is among us. The kingdom of God is among you, is within you, is at hand, is here. These are all things that Jesus said. Now this first and last beatitude declared that for those who are are unwaveringly committed to following the Jesus way, they will experience the ultimate reality of the kingdom of the heavens. The kingdom is yours. Instead of an ad this week, I just wanted to take this moment to say thank you for another amazing year. The Impact Nations family has done it again. You fed more starving people than ever before. You trained more vulnerable women and youth than ever before, empowering them with the means to achieve economic freedom. You provided clean water to more families than ever before, improving the health of thousands of people for a lifetime. In all of this, the gospel was preached and demonstrated, and lives were forever changed. And you did all of this in what most would argue was the most difficult year in a generation. In the midst of political turmoil, economic uncertainty, and just plain exhaustion, you continued to give sacrificially. You demonstrated again and again that you are committed to seeing the peace of Christ rule and reign on this earth. As this year closes, please know that all of us here at Impact Nations are praying for you and your families, and we're celebrating you. None of our work would be possible without you, and we praise God for all that he has done. And as we do so, we remember that he uses his faithful people to accomplish his purposes. Thank you for being willing to be a part of his great plan. From the Impact Nations team, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and the Lord's richest blessings on you in the year to come. The second through seventh beatitude, which we've spent so much time on, they describe the meaning of the kingdom. They describe how the kingdom functions. I love the contrast. Jesus says, he tells them, the world is going to revile you, the world is going to persecute you. You can be sure of this, but yours is the kingdom. Heaven welcomes you. Both in the future sense, and and the early church fathers and the early church never lost this eschatological sense, this this sense of of Christ coming. Um, They never lost sight of it both in that future sense and in the here and now, we can draw on that reality of heaven right now. John 17, 3, we've quoted a few times in this series. This is eternal life that you might know, experience, be intimate. That you might know him and his only son, Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 17, the only straight-up definition of the kingdom. I know the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the power, in the reality of the Holy Spirit. Right now, the kingdom is available. Right now, in the midst of our sadness, 
The second beatitude, he brings comfort. He dries every tear, the scripture says. In the midst of our our aching hunger for justice, he says you will experience a filling and a satisfaction from the heart of God right now. I was thinking about that when we listened to this song, Come to the Table. Because it's right now, and it also prophesies the great banquet. Our eternal existence of being together in perfect fellowship. We talked about that last week. Shalom. Completing the circle. When we're slandered, when we're ridiculed, right now he brings comfort. Right now we experience his mercy. This is why if we can see this with our spiritual eyes, with our spiritual eyes, lift up your eyes and see John 4.35. If we can see this with our spiritual eyes, then when we are persecuted, when we are reviled, when we are slandered, when we are purposely misunderstood, we can experience, not just hope for, experience mercy coming from the heart of Christ. This is why... This is why we can understand, this is why we we must understand that Jesus said, because of the kingdom being here, because my reality is not theory, because I am closer to you than you are yourself, as St. Augustine said, because of this, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Heaven to come, and heaven that has come to us. So we come to the end of this series. From the beginning, we've embraced the, the motif of the ladder. I told you it was this motif was used by a number of church fathers. I found it very, very helpful. But it's a motif. This ladder motif is filled with paradox. It's not a ladder of achievement. Someone wrote me about that this past week. I say it again. It is not a ladder of achievement. It is not a way to get God's approval. This ladder, these beatitudes are an invitation to a new way of living. And that makes all the difference. It's an invitation from a loving God. It's Christ calling us. This new way of living, the Jesus way. The paradox is that on the one hand, these beatitudes invite and lead us up to a higher place in Christ. Uh, Identification, intimacy. But at the very same time, these beatitudes are an invitation to follow him downward, self-emptying, dying to ourself. Philippians 2, 5-11 the emptying of Christ. Those who have the courage to dig deep, to go beyond reading the Beatitudes and saying, oh, those are good, I agree with those. Those who have the courage to enter this journey, knowing that it leads to the painful process of dying to ourselves, It leads to the painful process of me dying to my ego. As I go deeper into these Beatitudes, I discover just how much I am controlled by my self-image and the protection of that image, which Merton calls the false self. It doesn't even really exist, but we spend so much energy with the ego self. This is why the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the foundation for all the rest. And it, indeed, as I told you, it's the, it's the, it's the linchpin, it's the, it's the key for the entire Sermon on the Mount. The beatitudes are for those who are willing to lose their lives in order to find them. That's who they're for. Bonhoeffer, 
The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. For those who are willing to die to the demands of our culture and the age that we are in, that is controlled by the powers, the Beatitudes are for them. If we're willing to die to that. Several weeks ago, Brad taught one of the weeks, and he, he pointed out something that was, was really helpful. He said that the Beatitudes are structured in such a way that they present us with both death and resurrection, transposed into daily discipleship. I loved that. He said the first half of each Beatitude is a reflection of the crucifixion, mourning, uh, dying to our ego, meekness, etc., And the second half is about resurrection, these great promises. You will be comforted. You will inherit the land. You will be satisfied. And on and on. From the beginning, I've told you that the Beatitudes are the biography of Jesus. The Beatitudes are who Jesus is in the world. How he perceives and interacts with the world, and how he invites us to live. They're an invitation, but they're a costly invitation. The Beatitudes are full of grace. Full of grace. That is, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This morning, I've been studying slowly and carefully um, various passages in the, in the New Testament. And this morning, I began Second uh, Peter. And here's what chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says. This is about the grace. This is about the promise. Please, please, please never forget. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I've come to bring you the true life, abundant life, John 10.10. So here's what 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 say. Everything we could ever need for life and complete devotion to God has already been deposited in us by His divine power. For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing Him who has called us by name and invited us to come to Him through a glorious manifestation of His goodness. What a marvelous verse. As a result of this, He has given you magnificent promises that are beyond all price, so that through the power of these tremendous promises, you can experience partnership with the divine nature. As we behold Him, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, as we behold Him, we are transfigured from glory to glory. The Beatitudes are an incredible invitation into death and resurrection. And I suspect that the more we let them take us down, the more we are raised up with Him. Raised up with Christ. So let me finish with just a few practical things. Give you something to come away with. Number one, learn the Beatitudes. Memorize them. It's not hard. Just, just even somebody like me, it just takes, I don't know, a couple of days. But memorize them. And make them part of your prayer life. They're part of my prayer life. Sometimes they're part of just what comes out of me when I'm walking. Pray at different times through the day. Pray the Beatitudes. Secondly, consider them like so many have for going back 1,700 years, 1,800 years before us. Consider them as a ladder. It's inviting you up. As C.S. Lewis said, further up and further in. 
Thirdly, and this is something we went back on a couple of weeks ago. Don't rush. We live in a time that, that we do everything in a hurry. We read in a hurry. We pray in a hurry. We do so much in a hurry. Don't rush this process, this ladder. Keep going back, prayerfully considering each beatitude in the context of death to your ego self and resurrection life by the power of Christ. Keep going back. And finally, spend lots of time quietly in His presence, just beholding the beautiful one. For as we behold Him, we are transfigured. What is changing me on my journey, and it's slow, and it's imperfect, and it's, it's got lots of potholes in the road. But it is not more study. It is not more consideration. It's just more time in His presence. So, next week, we're going to look at the, at the how of the Beatitudes, which is to say the Sermon on the Mount. So, please come join us next week as we begin that part of the journey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, give us courage to look straight at the truth, to hear the truth, to speak the truth. Lord, continue continue to mold us and shape us. Continue to conform us into your image. Continue, Lord, to draw us that we would behold your beauty. Behold you and be transfigured by that beholding. We love you, Lord. I pray, I pray that you'd continue to work in us and go deep. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, in fact, that wraps season four of the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, this is the conclusion of the Beatitudes. I uh, hope it's been a, a really helpful study for you. I hope you'll never read the Beatitudes the same again. Uh, for further reading, don't forget to impactnations.com slash Beatitudes and pick up the book uh, that just goes much further in depth on these things. Uh, before we leave, I just, again, want to reiterate, thank you so much for being a part of the Impact Nations family. We really couldn't do it without you. We're so thankful for you. Thanks, and have a great week. Have a great New Year. <laughs>